This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week, we welcome back Dr. J. David Miller. Looking forward to a great discussion on some new changes to the AIHA Green Book Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold, and also want to talk to Dr. Miller a little more about mycotoxins. He's a world-renowned expert in that topic. Let's first, before we get started, thank our sponsors. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. I also want to mention ACGIH is our newest sponsor, and of course, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlot at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report that no one correctly identified 1963 as the year that ACGIH's first examinations were held and certificates issued for comprehensive practice, which was the answer to last week's trivia question. The IAQ trivia question for today, Friday, February 7, 2020, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, providing unique solutions to over-removal surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IQ Radio trivia question. Name the family of highly toxic mycotoxins produced by Aspergillus flavus and Aspergillus parasiticus, which grow in soil, decaying vegetation, hay, and grains. Back to you, Joe. All right, thank you, Cliff. We've got J. David Miller, Dr. Miller with Carleton University. He's also published over 350 papers on fungi and fungal toxins. He's co-written 10 books on the public health aspects of exposure to fungi and has several patents. He has served on many national and international committees on mold and dampness in the built environment, and he's a fellow of the American Industrial Hygiene Association, where they just wrapped up. Uh, he's the co-editor of the revised Green Book, Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold. Good day, Dr. Miller. Great to have you on with us again. Well, that's good, and, and let's just remember we're here to talk about this. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so, Thank so. you. All right. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I want to kind of start with I got I lost lost my place here on my notes, but uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about about that book, the Green Book. Um, you worked a lot on on 
revisions, and the first chapter on, on the health effects uh, was was pretty significantly revised. I wonder if you could talk to people a little bit about the process that you went through to get it revised and a little bit about some of the most important changes. Yeah. So, um, so uh, for those who haven't bought it yet, it's, um, it is very significantly different. Um, probably about a quarter or a third are brand new content um, in several directions. Um, everything else was brought into alignment with uh, 2019, 2020, um, uh, as opposed to 2007. Uh, and for some things, that was a lot of work. So there's the chapter that was there on all the different guidances that exist, uh, uh, mainly in the United States, on you know from states and and uh, cities in some cases. Um, um, cognizant authorities like the um, IRCRC, others, uh, ASTM. So all of those, it took a long time to to weed out the old stuff and put the new stuff in. And that was done really well by uh, Jack Springston, who was a recent guest on this your program, Joe, uh, mm-hmm. and Ling Ling Hung. <clears throat> um, uh, another, uh, and then... In terms of the rest of the book, another big change was that, unfortunately for practitioners, many of the fungi that we've come to know and love, their names have been changed. And, <laughs> and, and so basically where it's important, the old and the new names are there, but, but the names will change and, and people will have this book on their shelves, I hope, for another 10 years or so. So by the time over the next four or five years, those names, to the extent people get um, um, their fungi and their tests named, uh, will be aligned with current best practice. Um, uh, and then the rest of the book was was gone through with a fine tooth comb to make sure that it still stood. Uh, and importantly, in my, in my view as a professor, is that the references that support it, there's been so much research in the, in the intervening 13 years um, that uh, every, all of the references are, are um, you know, been brought up to date where that is in fact relevant. Um, and as before, then key sections were peer reviewed by, by knowledgeable experts, and mo- mostly in the United States, some in Canada, and and a couple in Europe. Um, um, uh, another last thing I'll say about it, which I feel pretty strongly about, and have always in my work with AIHA, is um, um, uh, is in contrast to two thousand and seven where it would, there was still argument to be had about from a public health perspective about the significance of mold and dampness in public health. Basically those arguments have completely disappeared. Uh, and, and if you think about that, AIHA is a position pay, uh, on mold and dampness in buildings. The ASHRAE has uh, even a revised updated position and some state changes have been made in 62. Um, and important for me that the the group that represents allergy physicians also has done quite a bit of work on on in, uh, allergens that occur in building and also on material about mold and and, and basically in contrast to two thousand and seven where 
you know, you it was basically only public health authorities and, and some cognizant authorities like the National Academy. Um, now we have the WHO, the ASHRAE, the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, Health Canada, of course, um, 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 ASHRAE, all basically coming to terms on the same uh, thing. So that's a very big change, and and uh, and uh, you know that's reflected in the document as as you see it or buy it. David, why did fungi names change? Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, it's like the surprises people get maybe when they do 23 and Me. Um, so yeah. so there, there's a couple of reasons. Um, some of them you might regard as legalistic. So um, I'm sure you know that, um, um, you know, some fungi have, have looked like like the molds that you're used to that are, if you look at them on an orange, for example, I'll use that as a practical case. You probably all have seen a moldy orange. And it turns out that at least in North America, if you see a moldy orange, I can almost guarantee you it's one fungus called penicillium digitatum. Um, Now, some species of penicillium uh, also can have a sexual phase. So, some fungi will make sex under some conditions, but on other conditions, they'll just make billions of spores. <laughs> um, and, and until those connections were made, which was in some cases took um, centuries, like Cliff mentioned, really, really super important fungus, Acerodilus flavus, it wasn't known, even though it's one of the most important fungi on the planet in terms of public health and economic damage, notably including the United States in terms of crop damage, um, uh, it wasn't discovered that it had a sexual phase until about five years ago. So part of it is that, that people would describe fungi seeing different things. And so that led to lots of different names. So some years ago, after much bitter fighting, the mycology uh, crowd made a rule that a fungus can only have one name. So that's a big reason for it. And then the second reason from the process that I've just described is that it often happens in history that the same fungus was given different names. And and there's got to be a gradual process to fix that. And greatly enabling that has been the enormous rise in genetic fingerprinting to say, oh, you're not a Hughes, you're a Miller. If you see yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so it's irritating, but but it, it's a, there's a reason, and it prevents for people who work in applied uh, contexts like me. It prevents us from making important mistakes uh, about what we're blaming, like saying, "Oh, that fungus is killing I don't know bananas," when in fact it's not anything like the banana killing fungus. <laughs> David, let's let's talk a little bit about the um, first chapter: current knowledge about dampness-related health effects. And there's a section on assessing health-relevant dampness and mold epidemiological evidence. Um, but I, I'm sorry, I dropped my – I got the wrong notes up here. I'm going to go back to this right here. There's also some really interesting 
statistics in there. What proportion of human respiratory and allergic illness is attributed to dampness and mold? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying I'm uh, that chapter was the epidemiology part was drafted by Mark Mandel, who's essentially wrote that part of the WHO report and, and I would regard as one of the, if not the best expert in this area. And then the purely more medical part was written by Dr. Jay Portnoy, who's arguably one of the most important academic allergists in, in the world, but certainly in the United States and Canada. Um, so the, the strongest answer I can give is for the United States and Canada, where we have pretty large studies, in fact, particularly in Canada, um, of, of the association between essentially what I would call an informed inspection, um, how much visible, mold, how many square meters of visible mold and dampness are there in a building uh, in relation to uh, objective uh, health measures. And, and what that tells us is that about one-fifth um, of um, allergic disease, which means asthma and some other conditions, is associated with um, exposure to mold and dampness in a building. Um, and that's not a trivial percentage, uh, given that in my lifetime, the prevalence of asthma in North America is about doubled. Um, uh, so it, it's not the biggest piece, but it's not small either. But it's also a a piece that we can address pretty easily if, if we just address the, the moisture and the, and the dampness issues. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and that, that's a, that's a, provi that's a but to my answer actually, Joe. And that is that I hope that um, we have begun to turn the tide. So we, we harvested without knowing a tide of disease that happened with tightening buildings, changing building materials, changing um, adding air conditioning, changing heating regimes um, uh, uh, in the 70s and early 80s. Um, and, and I think we have turned that Titanic around, but it will be a generation before we see much, um, um, you know, much yield for that. And I mean, I often remind people that in, when I got started in this work in the mid 80s, the ACJH um, had as official guidance that if mold grew in a building, it was ugly, but it wasn't much of a health threat. No one today would say that kind of thing. So those that intervention of public health is going to reduce the burden. And, and to your point, one of the most poignant chapters for me in the National Academy report on, on mold and buildings and so on from 2004 was um, is a chapter about if we just build buildings the way we know how to build them, we wouldn't have this kind of problem. So yeah, it is, a, it is preventable um, and, and we can ameliorate it, but we can do that for cockroaches and hostess mites, which are really large uh, sources of allergic disease in, in North America and around the world. Let's let's go back. You you talked about association, and then there's you know there's there's um, methods for assessing the strength and, and linking dampness and mold with health effects. Hmm. What do we know now is caused by and or associated with dampness and mold? Well, I mean the things that I always say is that 
is that um, from the earliest really large epidemiology studies, which were done by Health Canada and Harvard in, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, that living or working in a building uh, that has material mold and um, uh, moisture damage increases symptoms in mold sensitive asthmatics. Every, there, there's no one who would profoundly disagree with that. Um, it increases the relative risk of uh, acquiring allergic disease. Um, and from really excellent work done by NIOSH, the evidence is that it, the presence of mold increases the risk of allergic disease to essentially all important allergens, which is speaks to the uniqueness or the way that some of the mechanistic way that we think fungi work. Um, and I, I, I will perhaps more directly answer your question about causality versus association. So, um, 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 I would have used this example, and I'm going to apologize, Cliff, but um, uh, Aspidose flavus uh, makes a chemical that is the most potent human carcinogen. Right. Uh, about one-third of all the liver cancer on the planet is caused by this chemical. Um, none of it in the United States and Canada today, and certainly not in Canada, it's too cold. But But until it was regulated, there was cancer caused even in the United States from exposure to primarily to peanuts and, yeah. and to some corn. And that persisted until, until regulation started after the discovery of the chemical. And about six years later, it was first in effect regulated in the United States against obstacles, I should say. So I've just told you that here is an extremely powerful chemical that causes serious disease, but it took 32 years to prove that it caused human cancer. And the reason for that is that, um, is that to prove it, we needed uh, an exposure measure. In other words, not what was in the food or in you know, sometimes breathing it in occupational circumstances, like in, in peanut processing facilities, um, about how much actually got in your blood. And until that was developed, it basically was that, that sort of largely academic connection uh, could not be made. So association in well-crafted studies, such as the ones that uh, Mark talks about in the chapter and in the larger documents that it cites, um, you basically, those count for a lot or it doesn't get said. Um, and Mark quotes language we use when you make these kinds of decisions, which I do more for help to do for more for chemical natural toxins. Um, uh, but but basically, it's about about is there um, uh, no evidence or insufficient evidence? Um, is there limited evidence or is there evidence? Is there sufficient evidence? So um, it's like pregnancy. When you're pregnant, you're not a little bit pregnant. <laughs> you're not. Maybe there's still something more to learn about it. So when a cognizant authority on, on seeing data in many studies, in many populations from different parts of the world sees the same thing, then that gets judged as sufficient evidence. 
what the causality part matters. So for aflat for the mystery chemical, um, uh, we can mention it now. Actually, yeah, somebody it. got it right. So yeah. So 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 um, um, uh, the causality part was helpful in telling us how many people got cancer because we could make that more precise. But whether they got cancer or not was decided within uh, eight years of the discovery of the molecule. It's just the attributable risk part. So to go back to your first question, um, you know, what is the attributable risk for hostess mites, for example, in asthma? We can measure that very accurately because we have an exposure outcome measure and we can do the math. But whether or not you got asthma from hostess mites has been known uh, since 1977. Hmm. Sorry for the boring science. I was just going to follow up. What role did lobbyists play in this taking 30 years in order yeah. to get corrected? None. Um, the, and I, I mean, um, I would say none. In fact, it, I mean, we digress, but, but there were academics and even, I'm, I'm sorry to say, FDA scientists who literally went to their grades saying it was a, it wasn't worth the economic cost to regulate this extremely powerful carcinogen. Okay. Um, uh, so um, there were, you know, people had different competing pet hypotheses for why you would see these cancer burdens in China and Africa mainly. Um, and, you know, how science works. You've seen it with mold and dampness. You would have people who almost went to their grave saying, you know, mold was no big deal, doesn't cost anything, clean it up, it will go away. But again, I would submit that no uh, one would say that today, um, uh, simply because that's not where the evidence lies. So during a journey, you can often get disputes. Um, indeed, especially in the United States, it was the peanut industry itself that led, um, that intervened actually before the FDA did, which is as it should be. Hmm. So in, in, with respect to what, what can be caused by and what's associated, most of what I have seen is respiratory issues um you know asthma allergy um maybe bronchitis and, yeah, and other things respiratory for reasons that are only partially understood um, um increased upper respiratory disease is also um and that was seen back in 89 and 91 in those early large epidemiology studies I alluded to. But at the time, there was no, not even a remote possibility of understanding why that should happen. And it went against all that um, the science of the 80s and the 70s uh, um, defended. It, it took, a, it took a, almost 20 years for the beginning of an understanding of what the mechanistic reasons would be. And I would say, and indeed, I would argue that's one reason why physicians have gotten more with the program is because we're able to give a reasonable uh, explanation for what the mechanism is. And that took lots of money and, and decades of work. 
Um, uh, and, and the reason for that is it turns out if you do epidemiology studies, you can relate uh, there's a very good correlation between the number of storks born and the number of babies born in some parts of the world. And you can repeat that reliably over and over again. But most people would know that except in Bugs Bunny cartoons that babies and we're we're old enough to know what that means <laughs> that babies don't come from storks. So there was a lot of caution in those times until better until you got multiple studies in many populations, until you started to plumb the mechanistic reasons that could defend the strong epidemiology signals that that we could see we can see uh, could see back in the late eighties, early nineties. What about other? I mean, we know that we have the upper respiratory issues that are either caused or associated. Um, what about other things like you know, obviously inflammation is part of this puzzle, I guess, that, that it seems to cause inflammation. And then um, can that maybe lead to things that other people claim, like the brain fog and um, the, um, what was the other one I was thinking about? Uh, but, oh, um, people who are tired all the time, you know, the, the types of issues you hear about, but don't see in the literature that much. Yeah. Well, I, w- I guess I would say I don't, um, so remember, I started, and what we must do in public health and on any issue is go from what we know. And and here's here's where we are: that mold growing in buildings is bad because it causes a, a, a burden of disease that costs the United States, and you know, I'll pick on the United States, costs enormous amounts of money. Allergic disease doubled in my lifetime. And the healthcare costs and the human suffering costs of that are not small. The drugs are not cheap uh, and they have issues. So so that alone is, is if you like, sufficient reason to be concerned. Um, and, you know, everybody agrees with them. And so that's, you know, that's the public health pressure is accordingly. Um, so there's, there's a couple of things there then. I, I, if you're, you probably know someone who gets hay fever, you know, from ragweed or uh, people of spring uh, pollen allergies from tree uh, pollen, um, um, uh, among others. Uh, And it turns out, and it's been known for a long time, and it's known why, that if when you're having, like I'm allergic to ragweed, so it depends on the season or the particular year, but there's a couple of you know, usually a few weeks in the year here in Ottawa where it's annoying to be having to take drugs to control my ragweed allergy. But the biology underneath the sniffling and the red eyes and the, um, is, is inflammation in part, uh, plus a bunch of other unpleasant biochemical things that makes you feel like you feel if you have hay fever. Um, and it's those um, that machinery does affect your your concentration and your cognitive performance, and a lot is known about that because you know uh, school exams or even university exams that happen at the height of a pollen season somewhere um, effects can be detected uh, on exam performance because all that bad biochemistry is going on in the brain so if you 're allergic to mold and um, in out mold in outdoor air about about eight or 
10% of people that are have seasonal allergy, it's to the molds in outdoor air, not to pollen. Um, and they're pretty big population health effectors, but we can't control them. Um, uh, you know, you're not going to feel well, no matter what you're allergic to and no matter where you got the exposure, dust mites or mold allergens in the building. Um, um, and then there, there, there are more, less well understood aspects of inflammation. Um, um, you know, the inflammatory process protects us from infections when we're old, but it has actually troublesome consequences when you get to our age, guys. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there's an axis of inflammation that, that probably matters, but, um, but uh, you know, there's more to, to learn about it. Uh, there was actually a really wise um, court uh, decision in the United States where in a large cohort of people in a pretty bad building, um, the court concluded that you shouldn't expect to see any unusual things that we don't fully understand unless you do see the usual things that that have been frankly recognized since the 17th century. So it's, um, you know, that's another aspects of the way that we think about these things. So normally you should at least not in everybody see some people that are affected uh, with the the pattern of disease that is most commonly, but it's perfectly normal when your body is wound up reacting to an allergen and other exposures that you don't feel well and, you know, you don't want to be there. That's a great point. I, I like the way you explain that. I, I want to, and by the way, John, I think we're going to skip halftime today. We, John, uh, John, you got to have faith is still under the weather. So he's remote. We'll plug the, the sponsors in on the uh, recording, but I, I really like to keep going with Dr. Miller here. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the three, we're, um, Okay, let me get back to my notes. It seems the most, still, the most reliable way of assessing health-relevant dampness or mold is visible mold, water damage, moisture, and mold odor. Yeah, that's all and true. That's all still true, right? Now, and, and the next that question. Was, that was seen in the very first modern study of mold and dampness. Um, which was done in the United Kingdom in the 70s. So um, remember I said that in science and public health, we like, and common law, we like things to be familiar. And we like to see the same pattern over and over again. So um, it also relates um, to the question of measuring things. Um, uh, So the thing that we really know is that if you go and make an informed inspection, um, uh, and document that properly, like the Green Book uh, offers, um, then that is the most useful to people like uh, Dr. Mandel or to people like me at at getting some sense of how, at what level of risk was the public exposed. So uh, just to take that out, as anyone who's heard me speak, is that if it's a postage stamp piece of mold in the building, like who cares clean it up fix the moisture problem if it's a whole wall what are we talking about why are we even having a discussion about that that's not acceptable fix it 
and then the the more complex decisions happen um you know based on on you know more somewhere in between at the lower end and and uh, and so really getting that down becomes critical to assessing two important things one of them is uh do i need to get people out of there uh and also to get uh, to actually deal with this problem if it's a postage stamp size then it's pretty easily uh you know dealt with if it's a whole wall in a public building or your house then the complexity of doing that properly ramps up enormously and so a whole series of procedures not just on health kick in based on that informed inspection as well as of course the business of addressing the moisture underlying moisture problem now, the other complex area that people run into doing this type of work is is mold that is hidden that that, yeah. that is difficult to find for whatever reason and we know that visible mold, water damage, and mold odor, are, and especially mold odor, as I understand it, um, are directly related to health effects. What other uh, assessment? I don't agree with that. Go ahead. But, Please but, you know, me. It's more nuanced that, that are, like, you can smell 22,000 molecules of skunk. So the human nose is, you know, not dog, but it's pretty good. And and so moldy smells are our species learned that to avoid run away if you smell mold. So mm-hmm. we're we're pretty sensitive to it. Um and it never happens in real life that if you can't if you can smell mold, uh that you can uh, that you're not being exposed to mold particulate. Um and yet our noses are really, really sensitive to to the particular chemicals that are in mold volatiles, about which a lot is known. Um, and indeed, mold volatiles are sometimes used in, for example, to say whether mold is growing in a giant grain silo. So they're, they're pretty sensitive tools for, for telling us about living mold. So the proxy of mold odor is, ba- is useful because it's uh, based on our sensitivity to to we're more sensitive than even a really super expensive mass spectrometer. Um, and a dog is more sensitive than we are. Um, and then, um, uh, but that it's a good proxy for exposure to the particulates that contain the allergens, particularly that, uh, and the beta one, three D glucan that we're exposed to with mold. Okay. Now what other, assessment or sampling methods have shown the most promise beyond the just looking for visible mold water damage and mold odor yeah well the short answer is a disappointing none um uh so the green book and the field guides uh, that are still the current edition the second edition of the field guide um what do they represent they represent that you need to have a properly trained person do a physical inspection of the building and you can never run away from that um and hopefully everybody that's listening gets doesn't disagree um uh but then there is the question that you raised joe suppose um the mold um damage is hidden and i've encountered a number of really catastrophic circumstances where that was the case 
that are sometimes difficult to test. One of them was um, a building, a large building where the, um, the something that's now against long against code, the fibrous insulation on the inside of the duct had turned to a mold factory. You know, no one was going to knock down walls and cut big holes in the duct system, and and it was actually quite tricky to um, uh, you know to read the tea leaves to see that that's what was going on. And, and, you know, when I got involved, it was basically after all the sampling, it said there's nothing wrong with this building, but there was a tea leaf there. So I made them go and open things up. Another example of that was uh, buildings that had been flooded. Um, and, you know, basically they weren't properly remediated. Um, basically they dried them out and said, well, that wallboard's okay. Um, and it took five or six years for the, you know, the signal that was inside the wall cavity to come into the building and start uh, making people sick. So, um, so, so what the Green Book advocates and what current, what research grade studies do is that sampling, if it's properly done, uh, offers a useful tool to um, second check whether you've missed something that that is material and um and in large public health studies the sample that is usually taken is of a very good sample of settled dust uh, because that tends to represent a integrated exposure over months and years and i'm sure that the certainly the industrial hygienists in the audience will know that um, most of our exposure to particles in buildings comes from the personal cloud that is even in medical epidemiology called the big Ben effect from the Charlie Brown cartoon. So when you walked into your uh, room or uh, today, Joe or Cliff, um, there's particles on the floor and it turns out just like pig pen, you're surrounded by a cloud. Um, and uh, and that can be measured. People have measured it, and that's what it takes if you're really going to measure exposure, but that involves putting a backpack with a sampler on, having little tubes stick out here. It's really annoying, and it makes noise, so you have to pay them like $1,000 a day to do it. Uh, and uh, and so thus, um, uh, in research studies, one tends to look for samples in the settled dust as, as – uh, as the first step anyway, um, but that is more time consuming and certainly more expensive. And what type of analysis seems to be working best for the the settled dust? Yeah. So, um, I mean, why we would do that is that we're concerned about hostess mites allergens. Um, We're concerned about pet or uh, rodent allergens sometimes. And so we need it for that. We are concerned about the presence of what is, in fact, an environmental bacterial compound called endotoxin and settled dust. It comes from outdoors almost 99.99% of the time. Uh, It's in outdoor air. um, um, And pets bring it in. Uh, If, you know, sort of poorly dried firewood because it's full of dirt brings it in. 
Um, uh, and we do worry about that because it, uh, it's um, with sufficient amounts that get in the air, it's a risk factor for hospital emissions for babies. Um, and more to the point that it interacts with uh, allergens in the building like houseless mites or rats or cockroaches or cats or dogs so that it takes less allergen to produce the same amount of symptoms. And that's been known since the middle of the 90s. So that's something we, we want to measure. In terms of measuring something for fungi, um, um, uh, what we measure in the housing and health studies that I'm involved with is um, is true fungal glucan. So there are different ways to measure it. So this is, um, you know, I guess there's a few minutes for me to unpack it. I want to go back to your question about association. And then I gave you a big hand-waving answer about mechanism and inflammation. Um, so one of the things that we have really learned, uh, and the physicians and the, and the um, um, you know, mechanistic guys like me, uh, in the past um, two decades, is that um, it turns out that the fungi that we call molds, that mostly of the type that grow in buildings, make a particular form of a group of chemicals called beta-1,3-D-glucan. Now, um, plants have beta-1,3-D-glucan, but it's actually good for you. It's, they're different chemical forms. Some mushrooms have beta-1,3-D-glucan. It's a different chemical form, and they're somewhat believed to be good for you. It turns out that the form that occurs in mold um, is, is um, um, activates a receptor in our lungs called the, which is called the Dectin receptor. So we have this receptor, humans. Uh, we know what its sequence is. It's been known for a long time. Uh, and it's one of those irritating uh, in deep inheritance issues like an appendix that we don't need anymore. Yeah. Um, and when you breathe fungal glucan, enough of it, and it doesn't take much. The dectin receptor says, oh my God, there's dectin here. So it, it says a, sends an inflammatory message out to the body saying maybe there's a fungus coming to attack you. That's sort of the evolutionary basis of it. Um, and so one of the really strong things that we've come to understand um, in relevant animal models and in humans is that, is that uh, there are a number of chemicals that are mostly to do with the cell wall of uh, molds as opposed to the sorts of fungi that people call molds that are in outdoor air. Um, uh, and that actually specifically turn on inflammatory systems in our body that, and I've tried to share with you that that's really bad. Mm -hmm. So, in a large study where maybe you've got hundreds of um, individuals and their health records, measuring that chemical properly uh, and getting a loading, in other words, the concentration per square foot, um, is actually useful in assessing the risk to the, to the, uh, to the population on a population level. Um, on an individual level, like in one house or in 10 houses, 
it doesn't work quite so well because of the story I told you about the pig pen effect. Mm -hmm. If we put personal air samples on somebody who wasn't feeling well in a moldy building uh, or a building we believed was mold and analyze that, we would exactly know what they were exposed to. So the, it's not that lots of researchers haven't tried to find, you know, sort of the go cast iron gold standard best way to measure uh, exposure to fungi in a building. And I tried to convince you, I hope, that how important that was even for this really potent carcinogen aflatoxin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people didn't believe there was a decade of argument. Uh, and people made fun of people who said that dust mites cause asthma. I, yeah. That happened when I was even a graduate student. In public, people would say, you're out of your mind. Of course they don't cause asthma. And it's the single biggest cause of asthma as dust mites. Um, uh, and what, the, what, was the, what was the change? We had a method to measure it in the environment, the allergen, and measure the antibodies in the patient. So, so um, uh, it's a combination, Joe, of, of what you're really exposed to in your pig pen environment um, or, and, you know, exactly what and how you're measuring it. However, that said, there are lots of tools described in the Green Book and, and in the um, uh, field guide that are useful to... Uh, um, somebody who's uh, done an informed inspection to help him or her um, assess the risk that they've missed something important or, um, or how far something perhaps is spread in a building. Uh, uh, but I go back to something that I at least wrote uh, in an ASHRAE publication in 1993, absent a really good inspection, these measurements have almost no value. If you stuck your air sample by that square inch of mold, which I have unfortunately seen done, it's going to look like a disaster. If you, you know, there are lots of ways that you can get bad data. You know, that kind of leads me into a discussion I'm really looking forward to having with you, and that's on the mycotoxin mm -hmm. issue and, and aflatoxin being a great example. Um, we in the industry, the practitioners are seeing a lot more people, um, even in the medical community, recommending that people take samples for mycotoxins in their home. And it's not necessarily along with an informed investigation. They may do it themselves. And I'd, I'd just like to get some real clear information out to listeners on mycotoxins because I also see people talking about new methods they have for cleaning up mycotoxins and so on and so forth. First, what is a mycotoxin? And second, are they ever volatile? Yeah. So the word mycotoxin um, um, was coined in, um, in Russia, actually. Uh, there was a widespread belief in the new world that molds didn't cause any public health problems. <laughs> it wasn't true, of course, but um, uh, uh, in around the late 1950s, uh, but it didn't really gain large currency until almost the late 60s, early 70s. Um, 
And so what it means in science, uh, what it means in public health, in international trade, is a compound produced by a filamentous fungus, not a mushroom, that is known to cause human or animal disease. Um, and, and the number, there are actually only five agriculturally important mycotoxins about which we know a lot because they cause so much economic damage, uh, including in the United States and in Canada. Um, uh, but we produce so much food and we're so good about managing it that the average consumer doesn't know, except in bad years the year before, the price of a commodity will go up on your grocery store shelf. Um, and, and because they matter so much economically, uh, it really matters for public and their high human exposure compounds are potentially so. It really matters. It was always a problem, um, certainly for me as a, somebody who knows more than most about mycotoxins, when people started to import that um, word and that idea into the built environment context. Um, and uh, and persist to this day. Um, uh, so they're never volatile, and they're always associated with particles of the fungus, especially the spores, um, and also particles of the substrate uh, that is damaged uh, by the mold, whether it be food or possibly building materials. And in the Green Book, there is, um, since in the intervening dozen or so years, a lot has been done about this, there is actually a discussion about the uh, matching the fungi that are common in building materials together with the compounds that they produce, uh, none of which are agriculturally important mycotoxins like aflatoxin, for example. So recently, a physician in the United States uh, asked me a question about someone who'd been tested for ochratoxin A. Um, and and the, the supposition was that this was somehow due to their exposed in a building. Um, that fungus doesn't, no fungus that makes ochratoxin kind of grows on a building material. Um, exposure in the United States comes from, which is very low, this is something the FDA pays a great deal of attention to, um, is, um, is uh, from wheat products in some years and oats. Um, it, our agencies keep track of that. Um, so if there was in a proper test of um, you know, a urine sample, for example, and I'll comment on that in a sec, um, then it's because that you ate something that has a tiny amount of ochratoxin. Um, and then there's the question of proper tests. So uh, testing um, um, either serum or urine for any chemical requires um, a lot of pretty good science. And, and for mycotoxins in um, serum or urine, um, there are, in my opinion, only a few labs in the world that can do that well. 
partially because to do that, you need um, special standards that have, um, that are chemically labeled so that you can properly quantify and, and, um, and, and even determine the presence of compounds that are present in low amounts. And remember, I told you the boring story that it took 30 some years for this really dangerous chemical aflatoxin for us to develop a biomarker, a marker in the human tissue that actually is dependable. Um, so the Green Book uh, quotes the CDC, the US CDC, it quotes uh, leading European um, academics as making the point that methods, especially for medicine that are not properly validated or, or um, you know, confirmed, really shouldn't be made to, to um, either make any kind of decision. And, and I would offer that tests of that type are essentially unlawful in Europe and Canada. It's essentially, it's a phenomenon that one only sees in the United States. So I, I, to clean up, and I, I, again, I, I, I suspect you don't think cleaning up the mycotoxins associated with indoor mold is, should be our main goal, but to do so is simply a matter of making sure you remove as much of the particulate that came from that indoor mold as possible? Yes. I mean, remember, I know that it's invisible, but I'll give you a practical example on aflatoxin. In 2013, a big whack of the U.S. corn crop was so damaged by aflatoxin that the world price of corn and sugar went up about 10%. You did not notice that. Right. Uh, other countries more noticed it because then they had to start buying corn from places that they weren't used to buying corn, like South Africa. Um, uh, uh, we really know how to deal with these things um, and um, uh, because it matters so much. And, and I mentioned, alluded to, that in agricultural occupational circumstances, one of the reasons people like me and people at NIOSH in Morgantown became involved in moldy buildings, you know, decades ago, where it was understood that grain workers could be exposed um, uh, to agricultural mycotoxins and that that was a potential occupational health risk, as it was, because grain dust weren't and brown peanut dust weren't properly managed. Um, uh, and that matters. So, so basically we know uh, that eliminating the particulates or as one of the three simple principles of New York, thorough particulate cleaning is pivotal to dealing with, uh, with a uh, cleaning up a mold damaged building. Okay, bear with me here on this question because I think I know the answer. I just want to make sure I hear it from you. So is there any method or any process or any chemical that can be used to uh, denature or somehow make mycotoxin that's in the indoor environment no longer an issue for people living in that indoor environment? Well... I'll start with agriculture again. The answer is there's no legal tool that's ever been approved. Okay. It's not because people haven't tried, but 
it's undesirable because you'd be adding chemicals to a system and not necessary. Um, and it adds cost. Um, the answer is in a building. The answer is yes, and it's been done at least once. And that's when the anthrax um, was released in the U.S. Senate and in one of the post offices in the in in the in the northeast of the U.S. They basically literally had to fry those buildings with chlorine gas, which destroys everything. But those were extraordinary circumstances. So believe you me, if we could find a chemical means that didn't also damage um, the building, didn't damage, I mean, the food uh, production facility, didn't mm -hmm. change the, uh, you know, one of the problems in the Senate building was that all the electrical systems were also fried. But hmm. that's a money, no object issue, isn't it, when you're dealing with a public building of that importance? Um, uh, but yes, you could do it, but there would be large costs associated with it. And I think the strongest answer I would give as a common sense answer is is the billions and billions of dollars that fungal true mycotoxins cause our food system. If we could make them go away, we would because they cost so much to our agricultural systems in, in, I'll just pick on the United States and Canada, every year, in some years, it's a couple of billion dollars of loss to the agricultural system hmm. in the United States. So, so it, and the least bad year is about a quarter of a billion. It's just invisible to consumers because we have abundance and we can manage it. So if we could wish it away or make put a wave of magic chemical over it, we would. Got you. I appreciate that. Now, I've got a text question from a listener. Um, Reinteractions. How important health-wise are interactions among biological pollutants and non-biological air pollutants? Um, so I, I, I think that was touched on in, in some detail, actually, in the Green Book. Well, the non-biological ones, I, I already gave one answer, which is that we know that burdens of endotoxin, which come from outdoor air pets or firewood. Right. Um, uh, not anymore. They used to come from crappy, humid, efficient uh, humidification systems that have been illegal for decades. Uh, and sometimes poorly maintained home um, humidifiers, which no one should have, that they will reduce the amount of an allergen like hostess mites that elicits a symptom. So that's an example of these uh, agents interacting uh, that are come from God um, uh, interacting. Um, it is um, likely, uh, and it would be known for endotoxin again, that particulate matter from traffic pollution that type of particulate matter interact with endotoxin uh, weekly uh, and probably interact with other things. Um, um, there's lots to learn about that, the interaction between outdoor and indoor pollution. Um, so that would be an example of an interaction of a non-biological chemical exposure. Well, um, that, basically isn't intrinsic to the building that comes from particulates that are infiltrated indoors from from uh, traffic. And fortunately, at least for decades in the United States and Canada, these have declined um, from better control of air pollution. 
you know, we're, we're getting close to the end here. I'd like to, we talked earlier in the week, and one of the things we talked about was that you mentioned three simple principles from the New York City days. I assume this is the early 1990s yeah. that I believe you still stand by today and they've stood the test of time. Can you yeah, talk to yeah. listeners a little bit about that? So this, the Green Book is dedicated to the late Phil Morey. And um, uh, Dr. Morey and myself, um, 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 New York City Department of Public Health folks, um, union folks from the city met in New York for a couple of days. Um, and, uh, and we had three ideas. One of them is that mold in buildings is bad. I hope I've defended that everybody still agrees with that. Yep. More so, I would say, than they did in nineteen in the fall of 1992. The second um, uh, thing we said is that how hard it is to deal with it is the more mold, the more complexity, the more risk. Everybody still agrees with that, I submit. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and the third rule, which was... Uh, was I've already alluded to is that if you, once you clean things up, then you really must do a thorough particulate cleaning. And it'd be my bias that if I see or, you know, hear about failures in remediating a building, a lot of it is because that thorough particulate cleaning wasn't done and documented. And in some other countries, in some countries, they actually have a requirement to go in and take a, uh, enough settled dust samples, much like an asbestos uh, settled sample, uh, and prove that you've cleaned that um, uh, properly. Um, and, and so all three of those things came up in those two days. Um, and all three of those underpin all of the public health guidance that I'm aware of all over the world. To this day. All right. Dr. Miller, thank you so much. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to add, anything I missed? And, and we're going to do a couple follow-up shows. I'd love to get the other co-editors of the Green Book on the show down the road here. But anything you'd like to add before we go? No, I, I um, you know, when a new edition of a book comes, it, it's, as Cliff said, I've done quite a bit of this kind of thing. It was really important to me when I was asked to look at this again. Uh, to make sure that there was enough new here to to justify that. And I promise you that uh, for people, the purchasers, that they will find uh, things that are new. And I, and I think we all believe the long process we went through this to do this, which actually began in the fall of 2018, uh, uh, 17 rather, um, um, that, that our efforts were, were worthwhile. And it'll be useful for another decade. Absolutely. I think anyone doing this type of work uh, should should get a copy and follow it because you've compiled all the most current, um, not only the most current, but the historical information and the most current information into one document that um, looks like it's going to be something that every investigator and remediator should have on their shelf. So thank you so much for your time. There it is. One more time. <laughs> All right. I don't get anything for it. No royalties uh, to Miller. <laughs> no royalties. All right. Uh, Cliff, any final thoughts, comments? 
No, no, it was just a great interview. I enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Dr. J. David Miller. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest. Uh, another wonderful interview. We've, we've got, a, got a couple in the archive. By the way, check out his interview when we talked about the dust mite issue in much more detail. I think it's something that indoor environmentalists oftentimes overlook. But anyhow, I also want to thank John. you got to have faith coming out of his sick bed and helping us out here this week. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Next week, we've got uh, John Hall, I believe it was, Cliff, one of the moisture mob guys. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about moisture and measuring moisture and flooring and so on. So uh, looking forward to that. that. That'll be a big series, right, Cliff? Yeah, Hall's uh, an expert in measuring moisture in roofing. Gotcha. Okay, so we're going to start with the roof and work our way down and add to the ones we did with uh, some of the folks from Tramex and others. So look forward to seeing you back here again next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.